Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. We here at WNYC are lucky to have arguably the single best housing reporter in the city on our staff these days, David Brand, who joined last year. Some of his recent stories on the radio and on our local news website, Gothamist, include Landlord Drops Challenge to Rent Stabilization at Manhattan's Biggest Apartment Complex, that's Town, Peter Cooper Village. Midtown leaders call for housing, not tennis courts, on site of stalled Pen 15 skyscraper. That's the one um, being built or considered around Penn Station. SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, rejects challenges to New York's rent stabilization rules. And looking for an affordable two-bedroom apartment for a family? The odds are against you. We'll touch on a few of these, but concentrate mostly on that last one about affordable housing for families right now. It turns out about 70% of the new apartments that the city is creating under Mayor Adams for the housing lottery system are studios or one-bedrooms, and many of those are in neighborhoods where many families with children live, that despite the mayor saying this when he announces housing policy in 2022. We have a hemorrhaging of black and brown families leaving New York because it's no longer affordable. We've decimated the middle class, and we need to refocus our attention on stabilizing these families. David Brand joins us now. Hi, David. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Brian. Thank you. And thank you for that very kind introduction. You're very, very welcome and well-deserved. And you used that uh, Eric Adams quote at the beginning of this article. Why that one? Well, we did an analysis of city data on Mayor Adams' housing program. So we looked at the roughly 24,000 units that have been built or financed since Adams took office in the start of 2022. Some of these were, uh, many of them were under construction before he took office, but a lot of the financing uh, is is all his administration. And it's impressive. You know, there are, uh, the last year they've been touting a record number of new units of affordable housing financed in a single calendar year. But we wanted to drill deeper on what those units were. And we were specifically for this story looking at family-sized housing, so two bedrooms or more to accommodate a family with kids or multi-generational family versus studios and one bedrooms. Because like we heard in that clip and throughout his time in office, he's really talked about risks to middle-income families in New York City, especially black, Latino, Asian families who are leaving because they just can't afford housing. So 24,000 units created in these couple of years. It's not bad. You know, it's without a lot of help from the state. We talk so much on the show about how stuck the state is where most of the money uh, would come from or the, the zoning requirements would come from for much, much, much more, the hundreds of thousands of units of affordable housing that need to be creative, but uh, created. But 24,000 is something. Uh, but your data analysis finds 70% of them are studios or one bedrooms. Is that consistent with the demand? Well, yes, in that there is a lot of demand for studios and one bedrooms, a lot of people exiting homeless shelters, single adults, a lot of people who just can't afford to move out of the place that they're staying with their families or, you know, young professionals coming to the city and, and right now rooming with a number of other people, of peers and 
uh, look, they would you know prefer a one bed or a studio for themselves. But only 30% of those units are for families, and that's who can have the hardest time finding an affordable place. And this is you know not new to current times. You know, it's kind of as many New Yorkers can relate to sharing a one bedroom with kids or uh, having a number of <laughs> partitioning the living room so that you can have children or uh, a grandparent stay on the pullout couch. So, you know, it's been a problem for a while, but it seems to be getting worse now with rents soaring. And so the city is doing what it can to create affordable housing, but not much of that is is tailored for families. Yeah. And what's this mismatch that you found in the data analysis um, between where the two-bedroom apartments are being built and the neighborhoods where many families with children live? So a lot of the family-sized housing is, uh, or sorry, sorry, a lot of the like single uh, person or couple housing, like uh, studios and one bedrooms are being built in some of the more suburban parts of New York City, uh, Southeast Queens, the Northwest Bronx. And, you know, there's a need for that type of housing, no doubt, but these are also the areas with the highest concentrations of families and the largest average household sizes of, you know, approaching four near five people per home. And so there's an argument that these are some of the places where we should be focusing more of the family-sized housing. There was a cynical take that some people who you talked to had on this, which is that they build mostly smaller apartments so they can tout a bigger number of apartments built on the available space. Some people speculate that they think that's because, you know, it's PR-focused rather than family needs in the city-focused because uh, obviously if you have X square feet to build on, you can build that many more one-bedrooms and studios than you can build two- and three-bedroom apartments. Yeah, and that was really a big criticism of the de Blasio administration's uh, housing program, affordable housing program, that you know you set a high number, 200,000, then 300,000, and so you're incentivized to get to that number by any means possible, and that can mean cramming a lot of smaller places into buildings. Um, that was something that Adams like explicitly... Uh, said he wasn't trying to do. If you remember when he announced his housing plan in 2022, he didn't assign a number to it. And that was somewhat controversial. But he said, no, we're not focused on a big number. We're focused on quality and meeting the needs of New Yorkers. You know, obviously it makes it harder to judge judge it if there's no number attached to it. But, you know, I hear what he's saying in that in that regard. But still, you know, it's partly trying to get a bigger number. I'm sure that's part of it. But it's also, it's not that easy under current zoning and building uh, restrictions to build these family-sized housing. So that's another element of it. It's easier to build the, the one beds in the studios. Listeners, help David Brand report this story. Are you and a family looking for affordable housing in New York City? What are you finding? And anyone in the city's housing lottery system right now, which we'll talk more about What's your experience been? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. As we talk about David's recent story for WNYC and Gothamist, looking for an affordable, and affordable is in quotes, we'll get to the definition, looking for an affordable two-bedroom apartment for a family, the odds are against you, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, call or text. So you tell the story of a family in Jackson Heights. I thought this was maybe the best part of the article, where 
the dad works in a deli. Can you tell us about them a little bit and their income and housing situation? Sure. So this family, they're the Costa family. They live in Jackson Heights. They've lived there for close to 20 years. Um, they have an apartment where they're paying $1,250 a month. Uh, they earn as a household about $30,000. Um, and so they're kind of stuck because there's no way they can afford an, a two-bedroom. So I should step back. They're a five-person family. So there's uh, mom and dad, two kids, five and nine, and a grandmother. And so they have a you know, decent rent for one bedroom, but they need much bigger, like at least two bedrooms, because right now the mom and dad are sleeping with the two children in the living room with a partition. So the mom and one kid take a bed on one side, uh, the dad and another kid take pull-out couch, and the grandmother, who's in her 80s, sleeps in the bedroom. So they need something bigger. There's no way they can afford anything bigger that they're able to find right now. And I think to underscore that point, there was an affordable housing lottery uh, for a new building down the street from them in Jackson Heights. And there were two bedrooms there. The two bedrooms, the rent was more than they make in a year. So, you know, they wouldn't qualify because their incomes are too low and they wouldn't be able to afford the rent. But that kind of shows some of the affordable housing, quote unquote, affordable housing that is getting built in the city. And so they're pretty much stuck in place unless they somehow win an affordable housing lottery for a lower income unit that they can actually afford. And you wrote, did I read this right? That that family makes too little to qualify for many affordable apartments, like even if they were willing to somehow try to scrape together together the money, they don't qualify for a subsidized apartment because they make too little money? Yeah, so these units, so affordable housing has a specific definition and it's you would pay 30% or less of your income toward rent. And so the units that are created with city financing or city subsidy uh, go to people in different income bands or reserved for people in different income bands. So there's deeply affordable housing, what they call extremely low income or very low income, people making you know, well below uh, the median for New York City, people like the Acosta family making $30,000. Uh, there's a lot of competition for those units. But then there's units reserved for people who are closer to middle income or middle income. And so you have to show that you're earning a certain amount of money to qualify for those units. So uh, that could be a household of four or five making $100,000 a year. And you have to prove you're making that much and that you can continue the rent pay continue paying the rent moving forward, uh, and then only then can you qualify for, for one of those apartments, and that's which, the case. Which is why the, the first question that people often raise at town hall meetings that the mayor or anyone else holds on the question of affordable housing when they say, uh, when, when officials will say, well, we're building X units of affordable housing in the city, then the first question is affordable for whom? Exactly, exactly. Right? And we're so that's something we're going to be. I've been working, I should say, with my colleague Jacqueline Jeffrey, Jeffrey Walensky, who's our great data reporter here. And so she's been really crunching the numbers. And that's what we're going to be looking at next is. And so, you know, for listeners out there who want to talk about your experience, I'd love to talk to you because we're going to be looking at what are the income bands for these affordable units that are being created and financed. Before we take some phone calls on this, and our lines are full, as always happens when we talk about housing in New York. Um, but as an aside, almost, but kind of central to how we should think about wages, it's quite a lesson in the minimum wage hmm. when we think about the Acosta family, 
We sometimes think New York is ahead of the curve with a $15 minimum wage, which was so hard fought for. But multiply it out by 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, that's $30,000 in a year for a full-time worker at the New York State minimum wage. And you say that's what they make. And so I think that could start a whole other conversation about minimum wage versus living wage and what it should really be in New York State or anywhere else. $15 an hour? It wasn't that many years ago that we were talking about the fight for 15 as the sort of moral crusade for for a decent minimum wage. All you make is $30,000 a year if you're working full time. Yeah, and I think to put that in perspective, uh, a rent of $2,400 a month, which I think to a lot of people sounds pretty decent, that multiplied by 12 months is about $29,000. So that would eat up almost your entire salary if you were making minimum wage working 40 hours a week. And I think we have somebody with a story like that. Oh, it's Rebecca in Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, good morning. Yeah, I'm calling on behalf of my niece because she's been a part of the lottery program for years looking for affordable housing. She has four kids. Her husband's a school teacher, and she also does um, substitute teaching. And they always make too much money to get into the lottery because and because it's like the you know they would be putting most of their income <laughs> for their rent and trying to have a decent life with four kids in the city so she's she's they're overqualified as a as a public school teacher if you can believe that david sound right yeah well that's that's tricky too because a lot of the units that are on the that are the affordable housing lottery units for middle income maybe slightly higher than middle income people, the prices are probably more expensive than you could find on the open market in a lot of cases. So that's that's definitely an issue as well. And, you know, it's supposed to be 30% of your income, 30% of your income when you have four children or even one child, that costs a lot, childcare and all the associated expensive expenses. And I have two kids, so I can attest to that. So 30% of your income uh, is, is a lot in, the, in those instances. Well, with the number you gave us before, and Rebecca, thanks for your call, um, $2,400 a month, which sounds sort of relatively reasonable these days, that that would come to $29,000 a year. So you'd, be half, you'd have to make $100,000, exactly $100,000, right, within, within a few of that? Yes. $100,000 for 30% of your income to go to rent at only $2,400 a month. That's correct. Listener texts, it's worth mentioning how teeny, teeny, tiny the affordable housing units typically are. They are always smaller than the market rate units with the same number of bedrooms in the same buildings. True? I think that is true. Um, And I think that's kind of, uh, that's... (laughs) Units are getting smaller. There's no doubt about it. Across, like across the market, I think. So, uh, I remember looking at apartments in Ridgewood, Queens, about eight years ago or so, and so many are, are very similar. So many of the newly constructed apartment buildings with little tiny building, uh, little tiny apartments or bedrooms. Sorry, very limited uh, l- like living space, and you could tell that those are kind of designed not for families, but probably for roommates. Another listener text, I've heard that building even 
single bedroom and studio units can improve the price of family units because it gives the people who are currently living with roommates more options so families don't have to compete with such multi-income households. Is there any truth to that? Ask this listener. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, I've heard that a lot, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So if three, if three uppies are living in a three-bedroom apartment and everyone wants their own apartment, but they just can't afford it right now. If you build more studios or one bedrooms, then that would be opportunities for those three people to move into those. And, you know, ideally a family in need of a larger space would move into the three bedroom. I don't think it works. It it often doesn't work that, uh, that, that easily, I guess that it doesn't guarantee that a family would, but you know, if you, if you do flood the market with more studios and one bedrooms, then that, that definitely could be the case that more families will have options when those units open up. Yeah, and that concept is in your article, too. Mm-hmm. Serene in Brooklyn has a story, I think. Serene, you're on WNYC. Thank you so much for calling in. Hey, thank you for taking me. Actually, I want to share my experience. Like, I moved from Palestine to Brooklyn to Medwood, uh, 1990. Beautiful, huge bedroom, living room, dining room for 750 <laughs> It was like a dream now, I'm thinking about it. Uh, my daughter just graduated NYU, and you know how tuition is expensive. And now she, since August, she got a nice job in a company as a software engineer, but she cannot afford an apartment in New York City, uh, not even one bedroom with her salary. One bedroom is like 3000 3500 Plus, she cannot, uh, like, uh, he's just saying one third of the salary. Plus, these kids, they graduate from college with a lot of financial aid. Right. So, they're a right. Lot, a lot the of financial debt. Financial aid payments. A lot of debt. And then since August 1st until now, she works in the city, and I feel bad for her. She's living out of her suitcase every few weeks. One of her friends will host her in, her in their sofa. And when she applied, and she found many apartments in East Village or uh, around Chinatown, or um, she all applied. She doesn't even get it. It's a war. She, the, the apartment will be like 3200 and somebody come in and, and desperate, and they take it for 3500 3800 mm-hmm studio is the same that she cannot be qualified for a rent by herself that uh, you know you go to school you pay this much money you work so hard and then you crushed with the new york city rent and it's getting more expensive and when we go visit i think it's most of them is a studio and they uh, changed them and made them one bedroom the room does not even have a light or a window and it just basically fit a dresser and a bed. You can't even put a desk in those bedrooms. What do you think so your daughter's, I, Serene, what do you think your daughter's going to do? Is she going to look elsewhere, meaning not New York? Or what do you think she's going to do? I mean, I feel bad because she, her job was giving her in Seattle, and she preferred to stay in New York to be close to me. And uh, now I think the, the, the only option is that you know, she has to move and I have to move. Uh, because the New York City is really expensive. We can, nobody can wow. afford it. Everything is doubling and nothing changing. Transportation is, when I said move outside and commute from New, New Jersey, you're talking about the train and, and time and it's 50 minutes and the prices of the train is the most expensive I've ever seen. It's like the ticket. You, you live somewhere in New Jersey, it's, it's another hour, hour and a half commute. Yeah, and I and think those young that just went up by 15% to too, those NJ transit tickets. It's true. And if they want to drive to the city, there is no parking. So (laughs) from 1990, when I moved to New York City to now, I see it's getting worse. That's the sad thing. It's getting worse. 
Serene, thank you so much for checking in with us. Please call us again. And there it is. I mean, we could just replay Serene's call over and over again, and that's so much the story of New York right now, right, David? Yeah. I mean, she says it's getting worse. I think definitely getting more expensive. And I think her experience, her daughter's experience, is something that so many New Yorkers, so many listeners can relate to. Uh, Someone who's lifelong New Yorker, it sounds like, uh, from Midwood, great education at NYU, and is struggling to find an apartment for $3,200. That's a lot. And... Uh, you know, maybe places that she's looking, East Village, can't find that, decides to go, you know, a little further east into neighborhoods of Brooklyn, neighborhoods of Queens or the Bronx. And then pe- where apartments are less expensive, those apartments, the prices go up there. People who are living in those uh, in those neighborhoods all their lives are suddenly facing higher rents and it goes on and on. And that's what we've seen now for many, many years as, as we deal with this housing crisis and... Uh, too few available affordable units. So I don't expect you to solve New York City's housing woes, but you do report on city council members talking about trying to do something in addition to what's already been done. What's the latest on the table? Well, last last year, uh, the city council passed legislation introduced by uh, Speaker Adrian Adams that would create kind of a, a, a more comprehensive housing needs assessment for all of New York City. And that could be a way to target uh, housing or like to to first examine like, okay, here's Northeast Queens. You're producing very little new affordable housing. What what do residents there need? What is be, being produced right now? And try to tailor new development to meet those needs in, in every neighborhood in the city and, and try to fuel more housing construction in every neighborhood. Um, another thing on the table right now is Mayor Adams' city of yes for uh, housing proposals that would change zoning codes to allow for more housing and allow for more housing in lower density communities. So not talking about like huge skyscrapers or anything, but if, uh, you know, there's a commercial lot with uh, a single story, being able to add a couple stories of housing on top of that. So talk to a lot of housing experts and they say that it's going to take a lot of those kind of smaller incremental changes around the city to create more housing stock and and get rents under control and create more affordable housing. Hey, David, before you go, can I graze through a couple of your other recent articles for some quickies, like sort of a lightning round of uh, housing reporting by WNYC's David Brand? Let's go for it. Landlord drops challenge to rent stabilization at Stytown and Peter Cooper Village. They were trying to remove it again? So the private equity firm Blackstone, one of the country's largest landlords, uh, bought Stytown, Peter Cooper Village in uh, 2015. And, you know, that was a preservation. It was a preservation deal for about half the apartments that would stay rent stabilized. And then eventually they wanted to lift more than half of the units out of rent stabilization so that they'd be able to charge whatever they want. Uh, In the meantime, state laws changed and said that if a unit is rent stabilized, it has to stay rent stabilized. there was a lawsuit based on that ruling uh, where the tenants wanted to keep their apartments rent stabilized. The judge sided with them last year. Blackstone appealed, uh, but then this weekend dropped that appeal in the wake of a Supreme Court ruling uh, or a Supreme Court decision not to take up a challenge to New York's rent stabilization laws. So, ah, and that's that's the next one, and that's huge. Uh, a lot of people haven't 
even heard about this with all the, you know, huge national implication things that the Supreme Court has been dealing with, presidential immunity and abortion rights and everything else. But your headline, SCOTUS rejects challenge to New York's rent stabilization rules. Who tried to kill them how? Well, so there was four total challenges that the Supreme Court uh, was considering or was, you know, had the choice whether to consider or not. And so two were brought by landlord groups in New York. And then over the over the fall, uh, Supreme Court decided not to hear those challenges. And then these other two that they decided last week not to consider were brought by individual landlords in Manhattan and Long Island City, Queens, who said that the current rent stabilization rules uh, prevented them from basically from evicting tenants after uh, their lease expired. And so that that constituted what they call uh, an illegal taking under the Constitution, that they couldn't control their own property, that the government was controlling it. And the Supreme Court said that, no, we're not going to hear that case. WNYC housing reporter David Brand. You can also read the print edition of his uh, very deep dive articles in some case some cases, as well as the quickies on housing at our local news website, gothamist.com. David, always great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, Brian.